What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Yes, it does. Live from the NASDAQ, this is Fast Money. I am Brian, in for Melissa again tonight. And your all-star lineup includes Guy Adam, Tim Seymour, Karen Feynman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, we are all over the after-hours action in shares of Oracle. Earnings just out. The company call just getting started. We'll bring you all the news and the trade on a stock that some say is the forgotten giant of big tech. Plus, is the entire market about to flip on its head? B of A's Savita Subramanian says it is. She'll tell you why and what to buy now. And later, speaking of buying, buy your Christmas gifts now. We'll tell you what just happened to Nike. It could be a big warning for the rest of retail. You, dear shopper, have been warned. All right, welcome. We are going to get to all of that on this big hour, but we have to start with a big day for big oil. Crude oil back above 70 bucks a barrel as demand rises, production stays flat, and the U.S. dollar gains. This pushed a big day for the OIH, Oil Services ETF, jumping almost 5% for its best day in nearly three weeks. Some beaten up stocks going along for the ride. Like double-digit gains for little-known names like RPC and Helix Energy. But it wasn't just them showing strength. It was more broad-based. And the energy sector was the best-performing group in the S&P 500 today by far. But, of course, we have seen this before. In June, the OIH was at $240. Everything looked great. Only to leave some investors crying in the oil patch as it turned down in a big way. So, Guy Adami, we begin with you, my friend. Is this bounce maybe the start of a longer-lasting love affair or just another round of speed dating? Yeah, I, I don't know about either, but I will say that yeah, I was one of those people uh, a few months ago that thought oil would continue higher, and I sort of got caught up in that maelstrom. I think, to a certain extent, I think too many people got on that side of the boat, and the sell-off was precipitous. Dan Nathan posted a chart a while back, 13-year crude oil chart, that will show that we traded up to and failed at a downtrend line that goes back to 2008. So that was in play as well. I think oil can get off the mat here. I think OIH is going to bounce in a meaningful way. And I think Schlumberger is the way you want to play it. Traded down to the April low bounce. I think RBC just initiated outperform $37 price target. There are a lot of great names there. I think SLB is the one that I'd be looking at here. Tim Seymour, would you agree with that, both on the macro and the oil OIH, and maybe about Schlumberger? Yeah, yeah, I love his, I love his Schlumberger, and, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. On, on the macro overall, first of all, uh, you have a case where the great irony is that this morning OPEC uh, kind of reinforced where I, I think the demand picture for oil is pretty good. For oil services names, um, you know, that's great. Um, but part of the story for the energy trade back in June that the guys referencing that you've referenced, which I think was a trade, not an investment for most people, is that you, know, you can only buy these companies if you believe they're being run differently. So um, in the E&P space, look, the capital discipline is the story. That's why I think owning uh, not only a Chevron, but even 
even an EOG or, or a, a Fang or you know, some of the big names in that space that are well-run companies. But that's not necessarily great for the oil services companies, right? Um, if you've seen rig counts that have been struggling to get back higher, although they have been growing onshore, I think the key for the oil services names, especially Schlumberger, is the ability in which they can now forecast their business. And coming out of those second quarter numbers where they beat and they gave guidance uh, with much more specificity than they have in years is ultimately going to lead to upwards revisions by the analyst community. Look, they report in a month. Um, they're starting to see very strong international growth. Uh, the free cash flow generation dynamic is very important. I think they're going to be back at a 2019 EBITDA in the next year or so. So I love that name. And, and I think you can stay long. And on the charts, it's now back above the 50 and the 200 for the first time since early July. I think technically uh, they're setting up pretty well here. Yeah, and it's always with any ETF out there, you got to know what you own. My friend and former colleague Herb Greenberg, Karen, would always say that, you know, some of these ETFs have names and you think, oh, I'm getting into this. And then you realize the holdings are totally different. This really is a big three story. Schlumberger, Halliburton and Baker Hughes are 40 percent of the holdings. So if those stocks don't move in the OIH, Karen. The whole ETF is unlikely to move as well. Would you buy that ETF or just go selectively to some of the bigger names in there? Well, precisely for the reason that you laid out, because you kind of do know what you own and you, car, you, you are making the bet that you think you're making by owning the OIH, which I do own, which is really most of my energy exposure. So the big three, as you said, um, you know, Schlumberger or Schlumberger, as you like to call it, Halliburton and uh, Baker Hughes. And then there are a number of others, but, you know, they really all do move together. And, you know, I had started buying it when it broke 200 was not delighted to see it trade. I don't know, did it have a 170-something handle not that long ago? So I think there's still room for it to bounce back. Um, you know, to Tim's point about the E&P companies being uh, more disciplined, but I think all of the companies throughout the whole, you know, the, the whole chain are more disciplined. The balance sheets are in decent shape. So I'm going to stay long. I think there's still room to run, and that's going to be my oil exposure. Yeah, and you know, the, the OPEC news that, that Tim is referencing, Dan, was their, their monthly report on demand. And I know we talk a lot about electric cars and Tesla on this show, but, you know, we forget that there's a lot of other countries out there where people are not necessarily driving $85,000 cars. India, demand up there. China, demand likely to recover. According to OPEC, we're going to see about 4 million barrels a day more demand next year than this year. But is that any reason still to bet on a group which institutional investors have dumped out ESG. They just can't own them in many cases. Yeah, we saw Harvard's, uh, Harvard's endowment fund make that announcement last week, too. And I think that, you know, is obviously something that is not going to change going forward. Um, listen, these guys on the OAH, um, you know, does that thing set up pretty nicely? Tim lays out a good fundamental case why those businesses are run differently. It did have a 33 percent peak to trough decline, and it looks like it's basing here ready to go. I just say this about the XLE, the Energy Select ETF, where we know about half the weight of that are three stocks, Exxon, Chevron and Schlumberger, um, or excuse me, ConocoPhillips. But the Exxon and the Chevron, they act horribly. They're down about 13, 14% from those highs. They're still in a downtrend here. That's one that does not look particularly appealing to me. So, um, you know, it seems like the OIH is the beta trade here, um, but the major um, integrated don't look good. They don't act well. Crude oil just broke that downtrend that's been in place from that early um, July high here. And maybe you have some room to run. But if the XLE doesn't rally, as crude breaks out higher, then I think you got a problem in, in the in the major integrateds.
Yeah, and Guy, you know, it's, it's, we talk about crude oil, but maybe we should be talking about its cousin, natural gas, because natural gas has effectively doubled this year. It's back above five bucks. I know it was at 12 and 13 10 years ago, but it was at two and change earlier in the last couple of years. Nat gas, a byproduct of oil production. We need, the world needs more natural gas. This group of stocks will do well when the companies get paid to drill more wells, whether it's oil and nat gas. Are you at all looking at natural gas as an, sort of an addition to this? Yeah, I'm looking at natural gas. Yes, is the short answer. And you're right, it's at multi-year highs. But to me, it's more a function of, you know, is this transitory nature that the Fed's talking about as transitory as they think? And clearly, it's not natural gas. Now, the headline is crude oil and the sell-off was precipitous. But you look around heating oil, you look around nat gas and gasoline, those things didn't come off nearly to the extent that crude did. So maybe that's telling you something. I think you bring up a good point. I don't look at it so much as for the individual stocks as I am trying to give me to some indication whether the Fed's onto something or not. And quite frankly, I think they're way off base. And I think nat gas is one of the components that indicates that. Yeah, and it is soared as well. And Tim, let's go to kind of a subworld of oil and gas, because we can talk all day about fundamentals, right? Prices, rig counts, drilling, and that yes, matters a ton. But as you have said about a million times, the dollar matters as well. And for years, the dollar goes up, oil stocks go up. They kind of broke that trend about four or five months ago. It looks like it's back in sync. In this group, how closely are you watching the old greenback? Uh, every day. And, and, and I think for the resources trade and the materials trade and just straight commodities or even emerging markets, you have to know where the dollar is. And, and, and I think the dollar will sniff out Fed policy, especially differentials between central banks and, and, and structural differences between uh, current account surplus currencies or not. We'll save that for another show. I'll just tell you that I do think that the dollar is, is in a very interesting place because around 93 and a half, 94, um, I think you've got a lot of resistance to the upside. If Fed policy surprises to the hawkish side, then I think the dollar can continue to move. And I think the dollar will move quickly. And I think it'll be very difficult for energy assets. I don't expect that to happen. And, and I think the other side of, of kind of dollar policy, uh, as reflected in Fed policy, is Biden policy. And, and one of the things I've said for six months is the greatest thing to happen to energy prices is Biden's, you know, basically forcing at least the U.S. to push harder into EV and put all kinds of restrictions on fossil fuels. Uh, whether we want to believe it or not, fossil fuels are, are not going anywhere overnight. And I don't think they're going anywhere in the next 10 years, even though we hear out of Detroit what they're doing. And that's great news. Um, I think for better run companies with capital discipline that are being run for investors, this is not a trade. This is an investment. And, and these are companies that I think yeah. um, have had a difficult period because, in fact, everybody felt it was just a trade. Yeah, and I, I you know, agree, and, and it's an unattractive. A lot of people will say, well, that's, that's not an attractive thing to say about fossil fuels. IHS Market, very respected non-political firm out today, Tim, saying that the demand for refined products globally will continue to rise until 2036, another 15 years, because we forget, if you're in India or if you're in parts of the emerging markets around the world, again, I'm not sure you're buying an $85,000 car. So we'll talk more about the uh, energy fundamentals, I'm sure, at a later date. Let's now go to the technicals. Because while the chart master may not be buying today's bounce in energy stocks broadly, he is finding an opportunity in a couple of names in the sector. Let us bring in Carter Worth, Cornerstone Macro. Carter, you're looking at the charts. Well, what charts are you looking at and what are you seeing from them? 
Sure. Thanks, Brian. Uh, before we get to the charts, I mean, just to your opening point there, I mean, I am not embracing this theme, this area of the market. Sure, you can get good trades, and I, I think I've got two here, but it's important to note that from the financial crisis low, I mean, you're talking about the 09 low to present, basically the end of 2008, energy as an entire sector as a theme is down. That's a long time to produce nothing. And it's so concentrated in a handful of names. It represents such a small piece of the S&P. I'm not sure it's really investing anymore as it is something else. But can you trade it? Let's try. Here are two charts and then one or two after that. The first is continental resources. Now, if, if a bearish to bullish reversal exists optically, that's what this is, right? You're talking about something that was high as 75, gets to the low of five, and is gradually orderly been carving out a bottom, a rounding bottom, and call it whatever you want. I call it a bearish to bullish reversal. It's now 40. Take a look at the next chart. Different business, but it's an identical chart. This one dropping from 120 to 15, it's Simrax Energy. Same thing, a bearish to bullish reversal. We'll look at the third chart. It's a comparative chart. They look like railroad tracks, of course, because they both have the same character, long and protracted declines of 80, 90%, and they've then worked higher since the pandemic low, and you can see that arrow marking the low. How well have they done since the pandemic low? Final chart. This is a comparative chart from the March low to present. You're talking about one up 411%, the other up 415, I'd call that exactly the same, versus XLE up 71%. And these, I think, are still likely to be trades that outperform a sector that I don't particularly like. Good charts there. Carter, give you the last word on this uh, energy call, Guy Adami. Yeah, Continental Resources is really interesting. If you look to Carter's point, it's really never given anything up. I think Wells Fargo uh, upgraded the stock back in August, $45 price target, and it probably has more room than that. So well done by Carter for pointing out stocks that have done well and probably will continue to do so. Yeah, just a note, rig counts at 503 last week, well down from their highs of a couple of years ago, but up 249 year over year. So some good fundamental news there as well. All right. Good discussion, everybody, on energy, oil and gas. Coming up, is the overall market about ready to get flipped on its head? That is what B of A Savita Subramanian is saying. She is ready for a shakeup and says what we just talked about. Energy may be one of the places to be. But first, an earnings alert on a kind of forgotten name in big tech, Oracle. Shares, they're on the move, down 3%. We're going to find out why. All that as the Dow breaks a five-day losing streak and starts the week off right. You are watching Fast Money right here on CNBC, and we are back in two minutes. At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, 
which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. We have got an earnings alert on Oracle, the database and software company on the move right now after reporting its numbers. Stock's down, but not as much as it was. Get down to the details, listen in on the call as well. Josh Lipton, what is going on with Oracle? So, Brian, remember heading into this print, Oracle was up around 40% so far uh, this year. It was a bit, a bit weak over the past month, though still right near its all-time highs. Now in the after hours, losing some ground here. But as you point out, Brian, we are off the lows. Checked in with Evercore's Kirk Return. He called this a basically inline print against heightened expectations. Saw modest acceleration of cloud businesses on a constant currency basis. Kirk says that's a positive. Fusion ERP up around 30%, also a positive. Indicates Oracle, Kirk says, is doing well in that broader SaaS space. His rating, though, is a hold. It's rally hard, Kirk says, and he wants to see more evidence of accelerating revenue growth. On the call here, CEO Safra Katz saying this was a great quarter. If not for that strengthening dollar, it would have been even better. Total cloud revenue at an annualized revenue now of uh, $10 billion. All in total revenue, $9.7 billion. That's up 4%. She did just now give guidance. She says she's highly confident that fiscal 22 revenue growth will accelerate because of her fast-growing cloud businesses. Total revenue growth, she's calling for in mid-single digits, constant currency, and accelerating. She says operating margins will be same or better than pre-pandemic levels. For Q2, Safra Katz saying total revenue growing between 3 and 5% in USD and constant currency. Non-GAAP EPS, she sees growing between 2 and 6%. Brian, back to you. All right, Josh Lipton, thank you very much. Let's talk more now about this. Dan, Oracle is a stock with an average analyst rating of hold at a median target price, three bucks below where it is now. Not exactly a group hug for Oracle. What do you see from the stock? <laughs> yeah, no. So I think the, the the conference call, they're talking about this as a $10 billion business, their infrastructure as a service and their software as a service. The problem is it's just it is their fastest growing. It's just not growing as fast as a lot of their competitors here. And they're too cloud licensing and their cloud services were not um, up to snuff. They just didn't hit analyst expectations. And as you just said, Sully, most of the analysts are on the sideline here. So, um, you know, to me, it's not a great story here in an environment where some of their peers are still growing much faster. I think, um, you know, Lipton nailed it here. The stock was up 40% into the print. It's been trading between like 85 and 92 bucks for the last two months. I will say, Guy Adami sniffed this thing out, though, after they reported their last quarter in June. It gapped lower, and he thought it was a buy here. The stock quickly rocketed back up, made new ties, and has been consolidating. So there's obviously some investors who like the opportunity to play for that higher margins that Safra Katz spoke to. Um, but right now, I just think you probably let the thing come in a little bit trading about 20 times next year. It just doesn't seem that compelling to me. Yeah, Tim, why does an Oracle seem to get the love that so many of its competitors, literally neighbors in Silicon Valley doing very similar things, tend to get? Salesforce just seems to have just the, the kind of the cloud, yeah. so to speak, over Oracle. Because I, I don't think it gets the it doesn't get the, the pure software multiple, nor should it. And again, you're talking about a company that's been slowly transitioning, again, miraculous uh, in terms of actually where they've come from and where they're going. But this is you know, a five year average P.E. around 14 or so. Um, it's you know, somewhere around 18, nine. Dan's got it at around 20 times forward. He, he may be closer to the right number. 
Um, I, I just think that that's where you're talking about. Mid-single digits growth just doesn't get you there. Um, but yes, bravo to Guy who had this, I believe this was the O and the Hope trade guy. I, 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 you know, I know we've been hearing about Oracle for a long time and it's had a great run. Yeah, and Karen, I was just kind of saying how the analyst community there, I mean, they, they, they believe if you just kind of aggregate all the information that the money here has been made in Oracle. What do you think? Yeah, I think it would be kind of a meh. When I saw the headline miss, the revenue miss, which we don't see a lot of, uh, that made me think, well, I'm surprised the stock isn't down more. And then I went and looked at the last two weeks. They've had four analyst changes that I saw, three were kind of lukewarm and one was outperformed. So maybe they were sort of guiding the street down a little so that the street wouldn't be so disappointed by their earnings. Not that they were bad. They weren't bad. But given the, that, you know, the, the way it's traded, kudos to Guy for being on the train. Um, it just wasn't good enough. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Dan, Guy, Dan saying you stiffen it out. I mean, smells like victory, or at least it did. Uh, what do you smell it now? So it's very, it's very uh, Robert Duvall of you, by the way. I know you know what I'm talking about. It's probably about four other people that do. I think you can buy the stock still. Listen, last quarter, disappointed. Stock sold off for a couple days. A week later, it was making all-time highs. I think it actually made an all-time high in August. I understand valuation, but, you know, people are comparing this to Microsoft and Amazon and I understand why you would do that, but quite frankly, I think it's on valuation alone, it's a more compelling story. And she has turned this ship around in a meaningful way. Um, I understand why people are looking at the headline miss on cloud, but I think you've got to look past that. So I'd be a buyer on weakness here in Oracle. Buyer on weakness, and I will paraphrase Bill Kilgore. What do you know about surfing? You're from New Jersey. Guys, thank you. All right, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here is what's coming up next. The market is about to get turned on its head. That's the latest from Savita Subramanian. She's laying it all down next. Plus, running out of steam. Shares of Nike unlacing as analysts flag supply concerns. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody, and happy Monday. And it was a happy Monday for many macro investors. The Dow and the S&P breaking five-day losing sessions. The NASDAQ did drop a hair, but that move today kind of goes to a trend that your next guest says may be the way forward. Look at things outside of just tech, because the market may be about to, quote, flip on its head. Savita Subramanian of Bank of America Securities joining us now. What does that mean, flip the market on its head? Does What's working, not work anymore? Does everything change? What are you talking about, Savita? Well, yeah, no, I think that it's really the idea that a lot of the levers that have driven the S&P 500 to its, you know, all-time highs are starting to reverse course. So if you think about it, we've had, um, you know, super low interest rates, falling interest rates for a very long time. 
very accommodative monetary policy. Um, we've had stimulus coming from you know central banks across the globe, and we've also had no inflation. So it's been kind of a nirvana for for equities and especially for large cap tech. You know, companies that benefit from a low discount rate. And now, all of a sudden, you've got inflation. You've got the Fed saying they're going to start tapering. You know, we we think it happens in November. Even if it happens next year, it's still something that I think the market is going to start to discount today. So a lot of these really kind of beneficial aspects that have driven, you know, a, a tech-heavy S&P 500, a, you know, a, a multinational-heavy S&P 500 to all-time highs um, are reversing course. Not to mention tax reform, and I think that's the the sort of the last uh, the last kind of the straw on the camel's back is the idea that we're moving from an environment where the the big benefit we saw a couple of years ago in terms of the corporate tax cut could potentially wipe out earnings growth for next year if you run the numbers. So lots of really positive trends for for the S and P five hundred are starting to reverse. That's not to say that there's nothing left to buy. We think there's yeah. still a lot of attractive opportunities, but I don't know if you're going to get the same great gains from the S&P 500. Well, you, you reference it, Savita, because in for, for a year and a half, for, for very good reason, by the way, we've talked pretty much exclusively about COVID and economic trends and lockdowns and economic growth and earnings. And those things still matter, by the way. Thankfully, though, COVID cases are seem to be rolling over in much of the country. Goldman Sachs out with a note today saying going forward, it is going to be more likely about tax risk. We saw some details from the Democrats plan. We're not making it political, but the numbers are in there. A raise in corporate taxes, a raise in potentially capital gains, a raise on wealthy investors as well, at least over five million in income. What's your take on the tax risk to the macro market? Look, here, here's the bottom line. So I think that it's, it's going to be a negative for big multinational companies because of the foreign tax component. So when we run the numbers on the S&P 500, the corporate tax hit basically wipes out where we were forecasting about, you know, 5% earnings growth next year. That goes down to zero or potentially even slightly negative. So that's number one. Number two, if you think about capital gains, we've all, you know, investors have made money on owning tech companies over the last 10 years. And if they're sitting there holding these companies with monstrous gains and they're about to see a potential increase in the tax rate that they're going to pay for them, one could argue that we're going to see some uh, liquidation on in some of these sort of popular individual investor stocks. So that's number two. And then I think that all of this really points to an administration that's not necessarily using the stock market as their barometer of success, but they're really using the U.S. economy. And the U.S. economy and the stock market decoupled a long time ago. Remember, we've been in this lackluster economic period, but the S&P 500 has continued to crush it. So I think that that's something else to think about is that even though the U.S. economy is likely to be pretty strong over the next you know, year or so, that doesn't necessarily translate into great gains for the S&P. I think it's better for the Russell 2000. It's better for sectors that would benefit from you know, a bit of a CapEx pickup. But I don't necessarily think it's all roses for, for the S&P from here. Hey, Savita, it's Tim. Thank you for joining us. And, and look, I, I guess 
the point that you've made somewhere in your notes is that you think value, at least over growth, offers uh, more opportunity, that we're still relatively early in the run. You say eight months, typically they go 33 months. Um, so wouldn't banks be kind of the captain of that team? Um, and, and ultimately, if, if, if banks are running, the sense here is that the yield curve may in fact be steepening a bit. We've seen some of that, and, and that helps all industrial trades. And that sounds like a pretty big part of the market. Thoughts on all that? I agree, but unfortunately, it's not a big enough part of the market to keep things going at the same at the same pace. So I totally agree with you. I think that yeah. banks and you know industrials and some of these inflation protected dividend growth stocks are where you want to be right now. But there's such a slim proportion of the S and P 500. I mean, think about it. The market's gotten super top heavy in tech. And that's what I worry about is that, you know, a lot of what's happened over the last 10 years has basically boosted, you know, these long duration growth stocks to be a big part of the benchmark. And now a lot of the trends that, you know, you point out the steepening yield curve, rates are finally doing something besides falling. That, that's going to work for some stocks, but unfortunately, they're not the biggies in the S&P 500. Someday they might be, but today they're not. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it right there. Savita Subramanian of Bank of America Security. Savita, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Have a great night. All right, Dan, your take, too top-heavy in tech? Here's the problem that I see, and I love Savita, and I love her work, and it seems like a lot of strategists are coming to the same conclusion that earnings growth for next year is going to be wiped out by corporate tax hikes. The problem I have, and I've been short over the last few weeks here, and I'm trying to play for just a little bit of a pullback, Sully. I don't know if you've noticed this, but these pullbacks, the peak to trough declines are getting narrower and narrower over the course of this last year. You just look at that chart. The largest one a year ago was about 10%, and they keep getting smaller and smaller. Sooner or later, something's got to give, but it almost feels like, and I keep hearing this on Twitter from the people who love me on there, that the pain trade <laughs> is higher because everyone's getting on the same side of the boat. So sooner or later, I'm just going to have to throw up my arms and do a little shruggy emoji but I like her analysis. I like that analysis as well. Karen, your take again. You think the market's going to get flipped on its head? One thing that Savita was mentioning we didn't have time to get to is that, you know, for years, and I say this with all due respect for our loyal audience, you could look really smart just buying the S&P 500 ETF and making a lot of money and thinking you're a stock market pro. She's basically saying that time may be over. Stock picking, actually buying individual stocks, maybe finally ready to make a comeback. That makes sense to me, what she's saying. I mean, I have what I view as the sort of value-oriented tech names, like a Facebook, like an uh, Amazon. I'm sorry, um, Alphabet. I own Amazon and Apple as well, but the Facebook and, and Alphabet are the two. They're really value to me. Against that, I have been short the IGV, which is the super high flyer names, and I think those are exactly the kind of names that she's talking about. Rates start to move, multiples start to come in. Those are the names that are really going to get hit. So. I like that. I also in industrials, which has not worked lately. I hope that it does. Names like FedEx. We'll see next week when they report earnings. So I agree with Savita. I'm sort of positioned the way she's aligning. But, uh, you know, it's been a mixed bag for the past month or so. It certainly has as well. We'll see if Savita's call plays out over the next weeks and months. All right. On deck. If your kids are asking for the hottest Nike shoes for the holidays, buy them now. We are not kidding. Why something that's happening in Vietnam hit Nike stock hard today. Plus, as COVID looks, hopefully, like it's cooling back down, is Vegas about ready to heat back up? Maybe take the casino stocks back with it. 
We're laying odds on that. Next. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Nike getting hit today, down over 2.5%. Follow some bad news from Asia and a knocking note from BTIG. It is your call of the day. BTIG cutting Nike to neutral, citing major supply chain disruptions from its COVID-driven factory shutdowns overseas. The analyst saying this, quote, We expect the risk of significant cancellations beginning this holiday and running through at least next spring has risen materially for Nike, as it is now facing at least two months of virtually no unit production at its Vietnamese factories, which represent just over half of its total capacity. Karen, two months, nearly no production, and 51%, I believe, its total production capacity in Asia just ahead of the holidays. Wow, your take. I'm not sure if Nikes of the world have already gotten any of the shipments. I assume they've gotten some shipments for the fourth quarter. The part that of lasting to spring, that's kind of amazing. But we're seeing it again and again. We saw it with Restoration Hardware having to delay some of their uh, new concept stores. We saw it with Lululemon saying as great as the quarter was, they left sales on the table because of production from Vietnam. So this is a pretty pervasive problem. I think that Nike's kind of expensive here. If anyone will be able to source product well, it would be they, I would think. But I think that this is a real problem. And so with this, with this multiple up here, I'm kind of staying away from Nike. Anybody in the group, raise your hand. Can I get Seawall on a weird... Uh, there, no, I can Seawall on the television. Got a different take on the Nike? Tim's hand was up first. So, so uh, you know, my view is that Karen's right, and, and ultimately the valuation for Nike at around 46 times forward, uh, far from cheap, although it's a multiple that over the last few years, uh, I think based upon both pricing power, and again, Nike will offset a lot of that production shortfall in pricing power, and I think they'll probably net it out to, um, you know, minus 8 or 9%, so not as bad as you think. Um, I, I just think that this is a company that continues to execute in terms of innovation. Uh, their North American business to me, which again is part of what will drive those sales out of Vietnam, um, I think continues just to be so strong that the multiple stays here. Um, I look at the charts and I think around 150, a, a break of that is, is going to be difficult yeah. for this stock. But right now, um, look, look at look at restoration and look at Lulu um, with those announcements have, have gone back to near all time highs. Guy, you know, your take, too, because I want to I want to highlight this. Maybe this is Nike specific because they are more heavily into Vietnam because everybody said get out of China. They did. Now we see this. There could be other companies. Two months of almost no production just ahead of the holidays. I mean, I know people think supply chain disruption is such a boring topic. This is a big deal. No, it's a huge deal. I think you make a great point. I mean, I can't speak to other, company, other companies' exposure to Vietnam, but I do think it's not just Nike. I mean, it might be Nike in, in, you know, in terms of Vietnam, but it's all across the board, as Karen pointed out. And it is concerning. I think to Tim's point, though, where do you get in the stock? Now, the stock has sold off about 8% from its all-time high we made seemingly just a few weeks ago. I think that 150 level makes a lot of sense in earnings on the 23rd. This was a great note. And it's great to point these things out and to illustrate what's going on. And by the way, this speaks to inflation being more than just transitory, another conversation. But I think if you can buy Nike at 150, which is a level, if you call back in June, stock went from about 125 to 150 in a straight line. That's your entry point, in my opinion. All right. Good opinion there, Guy Dami. Thank you very much. All right. Coming up. 
Is it, you know, Vegas, baby, Vegas, or take the money and run? We're going to do a dive into the casino stocks next, plus some chaos in crypto land, a fake report that got some real attention in the market today. We'll explain this bizarre story next. All right, welcome back. And a big-time CNBC event to remind you about. Do not miss our Delivering Alpha conference. It is on September 29th with the biggest names in the investment community and global business talking about a new era of opportunity. You can register today at DeliveringAlpha.com. All right, casino stocks pulling pocket aces today. Shares of Las Vegas Sands, Wynn Resorts, MGM all moving higher. It follows news that gambling mecca Macau has been boosted by loosened travel restrictions for visitors. Tim, you flagged this move before. Your take on these names. Yeah, travel mobility, Macau, Singapore, uh, other regional uh, dynamics, which are huge for LVS. Um, I, I think just be patient, investors. I, I think you've priced in so much bad news here um, that I think on a 12-month outlook, you're going to see uh, some of those restrictions, like announcements today, are going to continue to evolve. They just will. Um, and I think if, if you look at some of these reopening trades, Macau, excuse me, uh, the, the casinos have been absolutely destroyed, whether they are in Las Vegas or whether they're global, especially the Asians, for that matter. Um, look at the chart. Look at $44. Uh, a bit of resistance here. Uh, but this is a stock that, to me, if you even are playing the range, uh, you've got a significant move up to 55 that I think doesn't require a major change in their business. Guy Dummy. Any, any one of these names that you like more than the others, you kind of lump them together and just ride the tourism. No, well, you, I understand why you could lump them together. I would look at Las Vegas Sands, which you know we'd been talking about for a while and said, listen, watch Las Vegas Sands. Watch what happens if and when it trades down to the March 2020, April 2020 low of about <clears throat> 36 and a half, 37. And quite frankly, on August 19th, that's exactly what happened, and it's bounced ever since. So if you're looking for risk reversal trade on the long side, um, I understand the headline risks associated with a lot of these names, Chinese names specifically, but I think the risk reward sets up as best it's had in LVS maybe since the spring of 2020. Yeah, and, and stateside, by the way, just quickly, Las Vegas, visitor volume up 12% from June to July, hotel occupancy up, prices up, rev par up, room nights up, everything's up. We'll see if the stocks go up. All right. From casinos to crypto, the major coins pulling back after some wild action earlier in the day. And speaking of wild, this was a bit of a bizarre story. Litecoin at one point surged more than 20 percent after a big press release went out referencing a new partnership with Walmart. The problem was the release was a fake, total fraud. After we broke that news, Litecoin crashed back to earth. Look at that chart today. The other major coins like Bitcoin and Ether also under pressure for other reasons. Dan, you flagged that action. No need to comment on Litecoin. That was just a weird story. What are you watching on a macro level? Listen, you know, that story, Brian, is really reminiscent of the sort of thing we saw during the dot-com explosion in the late 90s. There was a lot of stuff like that going around on message boards. So it's kind of interesting when you think about it in terms of um, some of these altcoins. As it relates to, you know, the action in in Bitcoin and Ethereum, I, I do think it's interesting. Last Tuesday, we had that flash crash where Bitcoin went from like 53,000 to 43,000 in a straight line in about an hour. Um, And Ethereum went from 4,000 to 3,000. And, you know, they've recovered a little bit here. But those uptrends from the July lows, they're now 
you know, threatened. They're broken. And, you know, I, I am um, long of both of them. Um, and, and it's a longer term sort of view here. But I'm keeping a close eye on those uptrends to see if they break those lows from the flash crashes last week and what happens then. So to me, we know that these are very momentum driven. There's a lot of technicals that come into play here. Um, as we talked about last week, I'm far more into Ethereum, but it really is just holding right above those lows from last Tuesday. Yeah, and by the way, there was a big-time fake press release that went out in 2000 on a big tech stock at the time. I know who it is. Any of our viewers know it. The first to tweet it, I'll say their name and give them a shout-out after the commercial break. So let's all – I know you guys know. We'll keep it there. It was a big story then. Uh, Karen, your take on the cryptos at all. I mean, man, they have just been volatile. Even for cryptos, they've been volatile. They have. I don't know if they've been volatile for cryptos. They've been volatile relative to a lot of other things we look at. I'm long this space. I've been long for a while. I, you know, I do believe in all of the fundamentals still being there. The threat of fiat currencies losing their value, the institutional um, adoption of it still underscoring ultimately its growth. So I'm hanging on for the ride. As I said last week, you know, keeping my fingers crossed is really half the investment strategy there beside the underlying fundamentals. Fingers crossed is the strategy on cryptos as well. There's also the ye old coin flip, the dart throw, and of course the blindfolded monkey making some selections. All right, coming up, Apple set to hold a product event tomorrow, and that has options traders piling into the tech giant. We're going to give the trade with Mike Coe with Fast Money Returns. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. That's a little sneak peek at the Kramer cam where Jim is speaking with the CEO of Barrick Gold. That's going to be a big one. Catch that full exclusive interview tonight, top of the hour, as always, on Mad Money. All right, check out Apple ticking higher ahead of tomorrow's big product event where we could get the latest on the iPhone, the Apple Watch, maybe some surprises. Well, today's stock action was decidedly cautious. Options traders are decidedly optimistic. Mike Coe joining us down with the action. Mike, why do you say they're so optimistic? Uh, well, what we were seeing was that calls were outpacing puts by about two to one, although I'll admit that's not that atypical over the course of the last month or so. That's pretty much what we have seen. The most active options today were the September 150, 155, and 152 and a half strike calls. The 150s were the most active. Over 173,000 of those traded for a little over a dollar 83 cents a contract. Buyers of those calls are risking about 1.2 percent of the current stock price, betting that the stock will end the week higher than that 150 strike price by at least the $1.83 that they paid. That would put the stock up about 1.8 to 2% at a minimum to break even. All right, Mike Coe. Mike, thank you very much. Appreciate it as always. Guy, your take on Apple heading into the event, the iPhone 22, whatever it is, is it going to be a market mover? Yeah, I mean, you know I can't wait for the event. I think it's on the 14th, like um, tomorrow, right? I'm just I'm so geeked up. I won't be able to sleep tonight. Is it going to be a market mover? I think no. I mean, we've seen historically that they're somewhat non-events, and I think with each passing one, they're becoming less and less interesting. I will point out the price action last week gives you an indication of how quickly things can turn for all the Apple lovers out there. All right, Guy Adami, uh, you can use one of those meditation, sleep meditation apps that you can download, by the way, from the App Store. Tim Seymour, again, these are big uh-huh. deals and they're cool events. Apple does a great job, but I mean, are they moving the stock? <laughs> Look, this is a stock that's been on the move. I, I think this is uh, a theme we've, we've kind of either hit on tonight 
multiple times in ways. Uh, you know, ultimately, the weighting of this stock and the indices, um, if you believe markets are moving higher with passive uh, asset flows, then Apple's moving higher. Um, there are certainly plenty of expressions tonight around where value overgrowth or you're seeing some heaviness in that part of the market. I, I wouldn't count out Apple here. Uh, I don't think it's really about what's going on with this new iPhone. I think it's all about how operators are funding and, and underwriting a whole new round of, of 5G purchases, how the refresh cycle continues onward. Uh, and I think Apple is not expensive at these levels. Dan, do you think Apple's expensive at these levels? Uh, it is relative to itself. And if you think that Nike has supply chain issues, I suspect that uh, Apple will, too, especially if they're rolling out new devices into the holiday season. We've seen delays over the last year or so, and some of those are limited quantities. So to me, you know, the, the, I think they're very fortunate that the stock came in hard on Friday. I would not like to see the stock into this event, especially if it's very iterative. Um, you know, it would have been expectations um, a little too high here. So, you know, this is not one I don't think you buy it for the announcement of these products that most people know what's coming. A good point, supply chain. By the way, just get, if you can get it made, getting it here on a ship sitting off the port of L.A., there's a lot of issues there with some of these things. You want the new iPhone, you can't get it. It doesn't help with sales. All right. For more options, actually, be sure to tune into the full show. As always, you know it by now, 5.30 p.m. Friday. What is that, 2.15 p.m. or something, Mountain Time? All right, up next, your final trades. A huge tech check interview tomorrow. New Amazon CEO Andy Jassy, 11 a.m. Eastern time. That is a biggie. Do not miss it. All right, final trade time. Tim, kick it off. Hey, Brian, how about those Yanks salvaging one at City Field last night and Lindor shutting up that Stanton guy? But anyway, how about Las Vegas Sands salvaging a bad situation, selling off Las Vegas assets, investing in digital? I think that's a stock that goes a lot higher. Dan. Yeah, you know that EV tax credit story, I think it helps the U.S. automakers here um, for just as they're rolling out that Bronco, that kick, you know what, Mach-E and the F-150 Lightning, so I like Ford here. Karen. Yeah, I like Morgan Stanley. I think being in the asset management business, the trading business, the capital markets and, and underwriting and investment banking business is the place to be. Morgan Stanley. Guy. I think Mark Jacob thought he was an oracle uh, back in the summer of 2000, Brian, but he proved to be anything but, which is why you should just own the actual oracle, O-R-C-L. Good stuff there, guys. And by the way, the stock was Emulex. Remember that name back in 2000? Matt Bouchard, you were the first on Twitter. You're a smart guy. You win nothing, but congratulations. Thanks for watching. Mad Money with Jim starts right now. Have a great night. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.